I'm going to uh, start very slowly so that some peop any people that will trickle in will have time. Um, my name is uh, Professor Chris Alden. I'm uh, with the International Relations Department here at the LSE and, of course, with the Africa International Program. Um, it's, uh, this is an LSE Ideas event. Um, it has, uh, it's something that, uh, and an Africa Talks event. So it's been sponsored by two, uh, uh, two entities within the LSE. I am uh, told that you can do, uh, ha the hashtag for the event is uh, number sign LSE Africa uh, exclamation point. So those of you who do what I clearly don't do, <laughs> we can feel free to twit and tweet. Okay. Um, it's my pleasure to, to introduce our speaker this evening, uh, Dr. Umzukisi Nobo from the University of Pretoria. Uh, he, he's uh, in the political sciences department at the University of Pretoria. He's well known to people working in South Africa and beyond. Uh, his, uh, uh, has a degree from Warwick University uh, in uh, um, political economy. Has uh, worked for the South African Institute of International Affairs where he, we were colleagues. Um, and uh, also worked of course for DTI, for the Department of Trade and Industry in the senior research position. Um, perhaps best known these days for his column, uh, uh, had, having had a regular column for the Business Day in South Africa, and, um, and of course this book, which, from which the talk is at least partially derived, the, uh, provocatively entitled The Fall of the ANC, What Next? So that's, it was this book that inspired the invitation to come up to uh, um, the LSE and give us a, a sense of, of how, he, uh, how he understands the politics of the day, the, the challenges facing South Africa, the ANC itself, the, the, the uh, oldest liberation movement on the continent, and uh, the prospects for the, for the country more generally. So perhaps with, those, uh, with that introduction, I'll turn it over to Mzu. So I, I assume this is on. I can just speak. I think it's on. I can. Uh, thanks, thanks, Chris. Uh, thanks, uh, Chris and, and your team for, for inviting me to, to come and share my thoughts on where South Africa is, is at today. And also a special thanks to, uh, to Laura Baba, uh, who's made it easy for me to, to come here uh, and um, was supportive. Uh, logistically and kept me um, in check as to how I was doing in my preparation to, to come here. I, although I, I have done this book with, with a colleague, uh, I tried not to have an easy cop-out and simply uh, talk out of, of, of the book. I, I thought it, it would be better rather to prepare an entirely new presentation, uh, but also drawing on some of, of the themes that, that, that are in, in the book. When we did the book uh, last year and got published uh, early this year in January 2014, uh, we, we had a note uh, in, in the book that while many will find uh, the title, The Fall of the ANC, audacious, and some of the assertions and the arguments that we make in, in the book uh, rather extreme. 
uh, that within a short period of time, many will uh, say that what we said in the book was rather mild. And I think we, we are reaching that, that point in, in, in the South African politics. I would like to anchor my, my discussion today on, on the theme of, of leadership. Um, and uh, because leadership is quite central uh, in South, South African politics today, uh, you find reference to leadership uh, in, in many opinion pieces. In, in many commentaries uh, by academics and uh, political analysts who are outside of, of academia. And also, for any country that has had a history like South Africa's marked by racial hatred and social tensions, uh, could, it, it simply cannot possibly heal itself uh, without a pivotal role that uh, leadership place uh, in, in, in bringing the country together. However, many, many a times, our conception of leadership tends to come from traditional notions of, of leadership, from notions of leadership that are grounded in hierarchies of power, um, notions of leadership that are grounded in, in, in pos positional conceptions, uh, notions of leadership that are, uh, that are associated with with formal t titles, and certainly uh, the, the conception of leadership tends to conjure up notions of political leadership, ministers, uh, you know, cabinet ministers, politicians, and, um, and high-level uh, bureaucrats. They, we hardly reflect upon uh, leadership from the view of mob mobilizing social agency in both the civic sphere and, and the political sphere, we, we tend to limit it by and large to, to the political sphere. And, and I think in South Africa, uh, there is a particular reason for this because uh, at the cusp of change in, in the country in, in the late 1980s and in the early 1990s, when we were negotiating transition, there, there was a process of emasculation of uh, the, the more civic and social agencies of uh, of the struggle, uh, those that were born uh, within communities, born within the trade union movement, born within the youth and, and women's organizations at, at, at the time. And uh, we sort of externalize leadership responsibilities to, to, to elites, uh, especially elites that came from exile and uh, that many saw as vested with uh, special wisdom, special knowledge, uh, you know, um, a special, you know, vision of of where South Africa can uh, would go in in the future. And this was not this was of course not made easy by uh, the saintly image of of Mandela when he came out out of prison. So, uh, so th th there was a, in a sense, a, a certain withdrawal from from the public space from. Uh, the social movements that were, were active at, at the time. And many even forgot that uh, when the ANC was, was in ex exile, uh, the, the, instru the instruments of social change that kept the momentum of struggle were actually located within South Africa. Uh, they were organized around, as I said, you know, the trade union movements, women's movements, the United Democratic uh, 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 Front, uh, that was a powerful block uh, at, at the time, uh, mob mobilizing uh, you know, uh, people across 
different uh, social spheres. Uh, and, and the ANC, in many instances, was irrelevant in exile, except uh, in, in terms of uh, its rhetoric and uh, you know, the, uh, the voice of militancy that would come through, say, Radio Lusaka, the Radio Freedom in Lusaka in Tanzania. Uh, so we sort of, as South Africans, uh, started a process of withdrawal from social engagement uh, until, I think, more recently when the deep yearning for leadership uh, today has a shrill echo across every sphere of society, in politics, in the corporate, and in the civic, civic spheres. And, and also there's a pervasive sense of powerlessness on the part of the citizens. Um, and, and this sense of powerlessness is tracking what many consider to be uh, a decline in, in, in the state of our democracy. The, the theme of leadership has been very central also in South Africa's journey from apartheid to, to democracy beyond just the elite transition that was managed in, in, in the late 1980s and, um, 1980s and the early 1990s, but through uh, you know, the trajectory of the ANC government uh, in developing a number of policies, uh, economic policies from the RDP to GIA uh, to the current rafts of, of, of policies. Now, to get into the meat of my talk, I think I would like to first paint a fair picture of where we come from before I reflect on the current state of leadership in, in the country. I think as many of you would would agree South Africa has come a long way since attaining democracy in 1994. And many were old enough in South Africa during that period would agree that the 27th of April 1994, when, when the country had its, its first non-racial and democratic elections, was a, was a cathartic, a truly redeeming uh, moment for, for, for South Africans. While the predominant mood was that of a dawn of a new era of hope, there were also forebodings, dark forebodings about, uh, a, about South Africa descending into internecine conflicts, uh, about a civil war that could take place between white and black South Africans, uh, about resentment that could, uh, you know, uh, 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 that could find its ultimate expressions in, in, in forms of, of violence. Uh, however, the spirit of optimism prevailed and we did not see much violence, especially after, after the elections. Even though uh, the first few years ahead of, of the ele elections were, were, mar were, were marked by bloodbath, especially in the province of KwaZulu-Natal, uh, conflicts between the Inkata Freedom, uh, Inkata Freedom Front, led by Dr. Mango Sutubutelezi and, and the ANC, and, uh, and many instances of violence in various hostels uh, in and around the, the Johannesburg uh, area. After the elections in 1994, the country attracted a great deal of goodwill internationally. Many. You know, many countries in the world wanted to do business with South Africa. The uh, new diplomatic relations were opened. Uh, the, you know, the, the, there was so much positive spirit towards South Africa, and South Africa was patronized by many Western countries as a future engine of growth for, for the entire African continent. Yet the challenges were, were quite formidable 
the, despite the positive air of hope uh, that was there, uh, there were formidable challenges that the new elite in South Africa was going to face. Between 1980 and 1994, the height of apartheid, South Africa registered 1.4 average GDP, which was insufficient to generate a sufficient, uh, uh, that is, a great number of jobs um, in, in the country. The average infl inflation stood at 14.3%. At the dawn of democracy, the country had an unemployment rate of 13%. Um, at 80 billion US dollars, the economy was very small in size. By the time we entered democracy, we, we had a giant status sovereign credit rating and an empty bank account as a country at minus 25 billion US dollars. Illiteracy rates were very high. Infrastructure was highly underdeveloped, especially in black areas. And, uh, and many, the majority of South Africans, didn't have access to clean running water, decent housing, and electricity. And I argue that um, faced with these complex challenges, anyone who would have taken over political power during this time uh, would have had to face these residual effects of, of apartheid. Uh, no one would have produced miracles in, in an instant. Quite early on, there needed to be a great deal of attention on building a capable, a capable state machinery to underpin the new leadership that was taking over. Significant resources needed to be devoted across the various sinews of government from local to national government, since, especially since bureaucracy was going to be at the coal phase of delivering public services. Under these circumstances, the new political class that ascended to power in 1994 had their work cut out. And the task of transforming the country was laid upon their shoulders. As I indicated, um, the civic structures tended to, to withdraw from the public space. Uh, when, this, when this new political class arrived, that is the new um, ANC leadership taking over power, uh, they spoke a, a, a normative language. Uh, they spoke a language of democratization, human rights, uh, a language of a non-racial order, uh, a language of a non-sexist society. And rhetorically, they professed egalitarianism and promised to deliver a developmental state that would cement a new social order vastly different from that wrought by the apartheid uh, regime. South Africa indeed started off a very low base and setting priorities to manage social and economic change is never easy for any government, especially the one that started off uh, from where we, we started uh, as, as South Africa with a bankrupted economy, with a very thin base of human cap capital and with um, massive expectations from the black majority. And building new institutions to support South Africa's constitutional democracy, fixing the macroeconomy, building a mechanism for social dialogue between government, business, and labor, and improving public services were some of the key priorities that were highlighted by the new political class. What compounded the challenges facing a young democracy in South Africa was the potency of race politics which are still clearly marked and visible in, in how we, we interact as South Africans um, in many social spaces. And also because of the high levels of social inequality, which again are visibly marked along racial lines, uh, there has always been a lingering 
resentment amongst black South Africans at, at the historical, at the historic injustices and what they have perceived to be the slow pace of change to correct uh, these injustices. Even today, I argue there remains an uneasy correlation between race and social hierarchy in, in the economy. In other words, those who are poor and unemployed in South Africa are still overwhelming, overwhelmingly black, and those who are well off and with significant base of asset ownership remain overwhelmingly white. This profile is changing gradually with the rise of the black middle class, but at a, at a very slow pace. This residual legacy is what, in my view, helps to sustain uh, the ANC's hegemony in the imagination of the majority of black South Africans. <clears throat> in the early days of our democracy, the promise of transformative leadership that was associated with, uh, with the character of Nelson Mandela held South Africa together in a creative tension where we were at once forward-looking, uh, but also seeking to find enduring solutions to the legacy of apartheid, including overcoming race-based inequalities. It was a creative tension that was embodied in the fragile pact between Mandela and President F.W. de Klerk, who was the last white president in South Africa. Both leaders were navigating an uncharted territory and often had to persuade restive elements within their constituencies. They were transformative leaders in the sense that they refused to bow to factional pressures, uh, they refused to go for short-term gains to gain popularity, and they refused to succumb to personal emotions. Instead, they were driven by a multi-generational vision. They saw uh, a, a vision of a transformed society uh, with healthy race relations, and in the case of Mandela in particular, uh, he thought that by selling uh, the message of reconciliation and nation building, he would get a significant goodwill, especially from uh, amongst the white South Africans uh, for uh, policies that are aimed at redistribution, uh, policies that were aimed at, um, at achieving social justice. Mandela's signature themes of reconciliation and nation building were, were aimed at constructing a platform for building a new society that transcended the racial past and that would be marked by a shared commitment to overcome both the social and economic scars of the past. There was no ambiguity about him. We knew what he, what he stood for. There was clarity in his vision, which was reinforced by his moral authority. He was a consensus-building leader, yet led from the front and with admirable decisiveness. Overall, and, and I think as a result of this massive goodwill uh, that came uh, in the early days of, of democracy, South Africa's GDP grew nearly three times to around 400 billion US dollars between 1996 and 2011. Literacy rates or levels improved uh, drastically, and, and today 93% of South Africans can read and write. Functional illiteracy has declined from 30. 34% in 1996 to 19% around 2011-2012. Access to electricity improved um, from 58% to 85% during this period, with uh, the delivery of uh, other basic social services also improving. Macrofiscal and, and monetary balances have also improved significantly during this period. Between 1994 and uh, 2011, average growth recorded 3.6%, with 
with inflation coming down to 6.3%. Between 1994 and 1997, which, uh, according to Goldman Sachs, marked a golden period in South Africa's economy, uh, there were peace dividends as well. There's also been a rise in disposable incomes of South Africans, in, partic in particular with the surge of the black middle class, uh, which grew from 1.7 million in 2004 to 4.3 million in, 20 in 2013. According to a recent World Bank economic update, between 2006 and 2011, the proportion of people living in poverty fell from 57.2% to 45.2%, which is still unacceptably high um, at just half of the, of the population. So this is the basic positive story that you, you would get uh, about South Africa. But it is also a story that unfortunately doesn't represent the totality of where South Africa is, is at um, and, and how far it has come in, in, in the past two decades, especially uh, considering uh, you know, uh, serious institutional weaknesses uh, that have come to uh, characterize the country, uh, especially in the, past, uh, in, in the past decades, beginning uh, in the past decade. At the most well, I mean, the, the core purpose that government set itself in, in 1994 was not to effect changes at the margins, um, just in terms of public service delivery uh, and you know, a, a building of infrastructure and, and, and doing better here and, and there, but it was to overhaul the entire template of uh, the apartheid social structure and to restore dignity, in particular to the majority of, of black South Africans who for many decades were on the margins of, of, of the economy. At the most basic level, there was a reasonable expectation that the behavior of the new government in power will never attract any unflattering comparison with uh, the morally discredited system that preceded it, which, which was apartheid. And I think what we are able to do today is to, uh, is to compare government favorably with, with with apartheid overall. Uh, so there, there's always this constant uh, reference back to, to apartheid that, well, you know, if you talk about corruption in South Africa, you will be reminded that, well, the apartheid system was extremely corrupt. Um, if, if you talk about, if you criticize public service delivery, you, you know, you, you'd be told that uh, under apartheid it, it was worse. Yet uh, this misses uh, the, the, the core point that uh, the, the very, purpose of uh, democracy was so that we, we never have to make that kind of, of reference point. We never have to uh, compare uh, the democratic non-racial government uh, with that of a morally disc discredited uh, regime. And in my view, the perf performance, despite these gains that I've highlighted, uh, at the core, the performance of government today has not only fallen be well below expectations, especially as income inequalities have, have increased sharply, uh, but, but also in many respects, the governing party is presiding over a state where corruption is becoming endemic, where there is a shift from a transformative leadership uh, that was embodied in, uh, in, in Nelson Mandela to what I characterize as a mafia state. 20 years after the first democratic elections, 
the ground seems to be shaking in parts that were always assumed in South Africa to be fundamental and to be to be steady. Uh, there, there is, um, you know, the the public mood in South Africa currently is uh, is marked um, to a considerable extent by a, a deep sense of, of despair at how uh, fast the uh, you know the ruling party has regressed from the promise of transformative change uh, to greed and, and venality. Just recently, and for the first time since 1964, uh, or rather, you know, in the yeah, 1964, when um, police were called to Parliament uh, when they, uh, the, the then president uh, Fairwood was assassinated, uh, riot police were called into Parliament uh, in South Africa. That was that was last week, and and this was amidst a heated debate about President Jacob Zuma's lack of accountability and refusal to pay back excess expenses on his private homestead in in, in Gandla, KwaZulu Natal. Uh, instead of uh, using what it used to be acclaimed for, uh, which is negotiations, persuasions. The ANC called riot police in parliament to deal with the members of the opposition. And I wondered uh, if uh, riot police can be called into parliament to manhandle parliamentarians, uh, elected public representatives, how, uh, how much more uh, would I be affected as, as a citizen uh, if that point comes when the ANC is about to lose elections? Would it cede power willingly uh, if it can't uh, argue points in parliament, uh, if, if it can't dialogue in, in parliament, if it can't man maintain decorum in, in parliament? Zuma is also the first president in democratic South Africa not to honor the requirement to appear four times a year to account before parliament. The ruling party has recently threatened to disregard parliament and instead create new platforms it can control where the president would account. These platforms are called imbizos, where the president visits communities. They are often uh, choreographed and um, and, and under the control of, of the ruling party. So it would seem to me that uh, the, the ANC would much prefer a monarch than a democratic president who accounts uh, regularly to, to parliament and who, um, who, 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 who conducts himself in, in ways that uh, demonstrate commitment to transparency and, and accountability. One of the sources of tensions in Parliament uh, has had to do with questions around the security upgrades that were effected at, at Zuma's homestead. Uh, this started to come under serious scrutiny about two years ago when it became evident that there were clear excesses and costs ex escalated beyond the norm or expectations. Uh, as a result of these upgrades, uh, the taxpayers uh, will be paying or have paid 215 million rands, which comes, you know, which, which comes to 20 million US dollars in equi equivalent. And these upgrades include construction of a new cattle kraal for the president, a swimming pool, 
which the ruling party have uh, labelled a fire pool, a chicken coop, and a tech shop belonging to uh, Zuma's first wife. After over a year-long investigation by the public protector, which is the office of the public ombuds, and at times frustrated by the president, he was then ordered by the public protector to pay back a portion of these upgrades. He has, he has to this day refused to comply. Instead, he has allowed the ruling party to launch a stinging attack on the public protector's office. Parliament, whose role has become that of defending the executive instead of maintaining oversight, has rejected the public protector's findings and absolved the president of any liability. One deputy minister in Zuma's cabinet publicly accused the public protector of being, of being a CIA spy, and there, were, and there were no consequences. He was following on the footsteps of party bosses who previously called the public protector counter-revolutionary and, um, and, and oppositional, both terms that are reminiscent of, of Russia Stalin, Stalin. There is also a growing culture of impunity and violence in, in the police force. In August 2012, as you uh, would well know, police opened fire on striking mine workers belonging to Lon Min Company in, in Marikana in scenes uh, that reminded many South Africans of the 1961 Sharpeville massacre and, and scenes that are well narrated in a documentary, Miners Shot Down by Rihad Desai a South African filmmaker. In Marikana, 34 workers were shot dead, shot dead and 78 more injured, and this was preceded by a flurry of communication between South Africa's current deputy president, Cyril Ramaphosa, tipped to become the country's president uh, after Zuma. And at the time, he was sitting on the board of, of Lonmin uh, and the minister of police, where he appealed for authorities to take concomitant action against the striking workers. After this communication between himself and the Minister of Police, uh, the, the police were um, arrayed to shift to a tactical mode, uh, to a tacti tactical mode. And what followed was the massacre of these 34 mine workers. The National Police Commissioner, who holds the rank of a general, but with neither police nor military experience, Public, publicly congratulated the police for a job well done. Up to this day, no one has taken responsibility for, the, for this gruesome act, and no one has been held to account. The economy, too, is becoming wobbly. The economy is on a shaky ground. Unemployment and, and income inequalities are intractable. South Africa has taken over from Brazil the unenviable mantle of becoming the most unequal economy in the world. Growth momentum in South Africa has declined from a post-crisis peak of 3.6% in 2011 to just 1.9% in 2013. Recently, it was, uh, the forecasts were revised uh, from 2.8% to 1.44%. Uh, business confidence, too, uh, is at an adir, and state business relations are characterized by mistrust. According to a broad measure, South Africa stands at just over 40% um, in terms of unemployment, with a figure for youth at just above 50%. Combined with failure to provide service delivery at acceptable quality and pace, economic strain has, since 2008, triggered a rise in violent service delivery protests across a number of 
poor townships in South Africa. One could argue that on the face of it, South Africa's challenges are not gargantuan. Every country in the world has its own complex social challenges, especially in the wake of the global financial maelstrom, which touched every corner uh, in, in, the, in the world. Many countries still battle with youth unemployment in Europe. Others face all kinds of vulnerabilities from terrorist threats to chronic fiscal imbalances to acute food insecurities in various parts of the African continent. Yet some are in turbulent neighborhoods and face constant, thre constant threats of military in invasions. So what I'm trying to say is that South Africa is not a unique country, it's not a special country, uh, it's not battling hurricanes, it's, it's not battling storms that are humanly um, impossible to surmount. But what is most worrying about South Africa's current political challenges is that we are a young democracy with very, very fragile institutions to restore internal confidence in these institutions and carve an important space for South Africa in, in the world can be very daunting when you have taken a hard fall. The harder task of rebuilding the economy and the soft infrastructure of social cohesion is nearly impossible in a climate where the political culture is degenerating and critical public institutions are undermined. And corruption in South Africa cuts very deep into the social fabric, into the state institutions. It is another force that has been undermining South Africa's moral standing in, in the world and contributing to a deepening sense of, dis of despair at home. <clears throat> Apart from issues of unemployment and inequality, failure to deal robustly with corruption holds the danger of tearing asunder our fragile social contract as, as a young democracy. Since the days of the arms procurement in the late 1990s, which was a process that sowed the seeds of corruption in present-day South Africa, the moral voice of the ANC became uh, increasingly blunted. This arms procurement program was defended by some of the best minds in South African government, including uh, you know, the former minister, finance minister, Trevor Manuel, uh, which at the time cost us 43 billion rands, and the current estimates are at 70 billion rands, despite the fact that South Africa is in a peaceful region and has as its major security threats poverty and unemployment. Uh, the ruling elite saw it fit to spend this amount of money on arms procurement and arms that we did not have cause for, we did not uh, need. South Africa has also since 2010 fared very badly on the global perceptions on corruption. For an example, on Corruption Perception Index of Transparency International, which measures 183 countries, South Africa has generally declined in its performance. In 2010, we were ranked 54 out of 183 countries. In 2011, we declined 10 steps to 64. In 2012, we declined further to 69. In 2013, last year, we declined to 72. Cumulatively, since uh, 2010, we've declined 19, sorry, 18 steps. For the past three years, the Auditor General in South Africa has issued a report, a reports indicating that around 20 billion rands or 200 million US dollars disappear every, every year into 
fruitless expenditure. They can't be accounted for. Which means that this, this money never goes to where it is needed the most, which, which is to, to deliver public services. Three years ago in 20, 2011, the Special Investigative Unit reported that 25 billion rands disappeared from state coffers as, as a result of corruption. And more recently, one municipality uh, in, in the south of Johannesburg, where there are volatile, usually volatile social unrest, 1.2 billion rands allocated to service delivery projects, infrastructure building, and other social services disappeared into the pockets of contractors and subcontractors, presumably linked to uh, the, the, the party bosses in, in that area. Even the significant portion that went into upgrading President Zuma's homestead is essentially a diversion from utilization in poor areas to securing the comfort of one person. While undoubtedly there are a few leaders with integrity in the ANC, they are overwhelmed by the never-ending scandals of corruption, from the arms procurement scandal that, became, that began under Mbeki's watch, to the current Gandla Gate under Jacob Zuma. To be sure, institutional decay in South Africa did not emerge like a lightning bolt under President Zuma. Uh, it goes a long way, and some have documented it back to exile in, 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 uh, you know, when the ANC was, was in exile. Apart from the arms deal scandal, in 2007, the then President Beggy protected the National Police Commissioner, Jackie Salibi, who was also the head of Interpol from prosecution by the National Directorate of Public Prosecution. Salibi <coughs> had received bribes from drug lords in South Africa. He was clearly a security threat in his position as the head of police. When his counterpart, the head of the National Prosecuting Authority, insisted on charging him for, for corruption, and, and there was evidence for that, Mbeki became irritated that his friend was going to be charged. Instead, he suspended the, the Director of National Prosecuting Authority. One can make a case that Zuma is really being consistent, because when he was uh, elected as president of the ANC, at Mangawung in 2007, and president of the country in 2009. He was facing 700 corruption charges, ranging from uh, money laundering to racketeering. So he's simply acting in ways that are consistent with, with his character. Beke should be seen as having been a catastrophic disappoint, disappointment since he cut a figure of a modern Democrat, had solid authority at the top of the ANC, and had the intellectual wherewithal to make a, a clean sweep uh, of, of government and modernize bureaucracy and put South Africa uh, on, on a path uh, of, of being a clean government, um, an effective uh, government in delivering uh, uh, social services and um, situating South Africa on the, on the global map uh, based on priorities related to enhancing national prosperity. While in the case of Mbeki, there was no material benefit uh, accruing to him. With Zuma, his, his mismanagement of the state is about securing, securing his personal survival and those closest to, to him. There is a new trend in, in South African institutions today where you don't need qualifications to to head major institutions. 
Uh, I'm going to come to that in a, in a short while. Um, in, in Zuma's case, his friends and relatives have drawn significant benefits using his name. Some have been transformed from being taxi drivers to becoming mining and oil magnates at the twinkling of an eye. Zuma's relatives and family members are guaranteed safe landing in a country that has 45% poverty rate, youth unemployment of 50%, and acute income inequalities. Currently, one of his children occupies a senior management position in a government department, despite not having met all the qualifications for, for the role. Similarly, the heads and chairs of some of the prominent state-owned enterprises are fraudsters. Zuma has influence in the appointments of these heads. The chief operating officer and current acting head of the public broadcaster, the equivalent of BBC, claimed qualifications he did not have. He has failed to produce a metric certificate that he claimed to, to have. The chairperson of the public broadcaster has also claimed to have a university degree she does not possess. The chair of the South Kent Airways had in the past also claimed qualifications she did not have. There's another scandal that broke uh, out in a, few day, in a few days ago where the current acting chief executive of the South Kent Airways is embroiled in a qualification scandal uh, when it was found that the degree and the MBA that were, that, that were attributed to him were actually never completed. The current chair of South Africa's petroleum state-owned enterprise, the only uh, such um, in South Africa, is accused by a former minister and a host of celebrities of swindling them millions of friends for a coal mining company that never existed and has been implicated in all kinds of poker schemes in Zimbabwe and Swaziland. He still holds his position as the head of the SOE. A leading intellectual of the ANC, Paolo Jordan, had earlier claimed to have attended this university, London School of Economics. He was exposed earlier this year as not only, having a, as not only being a bogus, bogus doctor, but also for not having any university qualification whatsoever. The party and some of the most prominent inter, uh, individuals in South Africa initially defended him and rubbished the importance of PhD for a party intellectual. So we've shifted from trans transformational leadership to a sort of a mafia institutional state or transactional leadership, and I'm moving uh, towards conclusion in the next two to three minutes, um, Chris. The brand of leaders that have arisen atop of the ruling party are, in my view, transactional leaders. We don't have a case of just a few rotten apples, but an eminently corrupt ruling party, the African National Congress. In his book, The End Game, Willi Estereze cautions against transactional leadership. He notes that it is self-evident that transactional leadership opens the door to corruption and promotes the possibility of opportunistic compromises. It is transactional leaders that convert, that convert uncertain democracies into criminal states. The success of political leaders ought to be measured by the extent to which their actions can promote social and economic inclusiveness of their societies. The role of politicians should therefore be to advance the well-being of society rather than self-enrichment. The danger for society is that this tendency of transactional leadership breeds cynicism. The damage of the ANC's political hegemony is that it has wrought destruction to the nas nascent 
trust that was under construction in the early years of democracy. It has also weakened the legitimacy of public leadership in the eyes of society. Even those who might well be clean and committed to good governance are doubted by the public. And as we know, trust, trust is a very soft infrastructure um, that helps to solidify the threads that hold together society. And it can act as a pillar upon which institutions that regulate political behavior are anchored. The disintegration of trust in society in societies often begin with failures of integrity in public leadership. And transitional societies such as South Africa need more, not less, integrity from political leaders. Uh, they are also uh, decline uh, in South Africa's place in the world as a result of institutional weaknesses domestically. And, and some of the foreign policy decisions in recent times under the administration of uh, President Jacob Zuma have suggested that uh, we, we have lost the compass uh, on international relations. Uh, we, we no longer live in an era of big ideas and clearly defined priorities uh, on foreign policy, but uh, pursue a pragmatic, unprincipled pragmatism, uh, especially in light of uh, the recent highly secretive nuclear deal that President Zuma and, uh, and Putin uh, have concluded, which will have enormous cost, exact, exact enormous cost for the country for many years to come. There's no time to, to talk about um, the, the state of foreign, foreign policy, uh, but uh, the, the reality in front of our eyes suggests that South Africa has lost the plot uh, in its foreign policy strategies. In conclusion, while South Africa boasts a sound constitutional framework that lays out the responsibilities of those who govern towards citizens and, and that defines the roles of various independ independent agencies to keep government accountable, this cannot be taken for granted. It is a de democratic ideal that unfortunately is choked by the backward character of the current ruling party, uh, the, the ANC. I think it's important to realize that there are limits to achieving change by forming new political parties to challenge what has become the status quo in the form of the ANC government. If, even if such opposition parties were to succeed in taking over power one day, there are no guarantees that the perennial problems resulting in part from the apartheid leakers, in part from the culture of, of finality that festered under the ANC government, in, and in part from the generational shifts in society will be, will be solved. Any party that takes over from the ANC may also just turn out to be the same, or even worse than the, the ruling party. There are currently two parties that are dominating the, the political scene in South Africa today, the Economic Freedom Fighters, led by Julius Malema, and the Democratic Alliance. And, and both these parties have serious limitations. Um, in the case of the Economic Freedom Fighters, it's, it's a party that is driven largely by, by populism. Its leader, Julius Malema, cuts a figure akin to that of Idi Amin. Uh, its, its messages are often laced with, with violence, and it seems to be more interested in causing a spectacle in parliament and playing to the public gal gallery than marshalling innovative ideas about where South Africa should be going. In the case of the Democratic Alliance, it has so far failed to win the hearts and minds 
of um, the, the black majority in South Africa. It's seen by many as a, a defender of white privilege. It's uncomfortable talking about race. It has no clear ideas uh, around uh, issues of social justice and, and narrowing uh, the race-based uh, inequalities um, that, that still prevail in, in South Africa today. However, I, I still uh, hold high hopes and optimism for South Africa, but those hopes really rest on a social agency uh, um, contestation not just of uh, the formal political spaces but also the civic sphere because the failure of leadership in South Africa cuts across uh, the spheres of politics of, of economy and, um, and, and, and the civic um, and there is a need as much as we need to uh, to assail uh, the hegemony of the ANC there is also a need for a new breed of leaders uh, that uh, uh, that walk in the footsteps of people like uh, Bishop, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, transformational leadership that have um, a moral voice, um, clear moral authority, and, and that are able to, um, you know, to speak and be listened across uh, the political divides in South Africa. I'll leave my talk there, and uh, apologies for going uh, slightly over time, Chris. Thank you Thanks. very much.